You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, Good evening, Revolution Church. Thank you. Right, so we are continuing our series through 1 John, uh, and in this we're just seeing the truths that John wanted to hand down to us and how our lives should be affected by them, right? That's, that's what we do every time we open the Word of God. Um, and you know, I didn't have a name for the series. If I were to name it, I would probably name this series through 1 John, Simple Truths, right? But it's too late for me to actually name it, so this is the unofficial name, right? We're like two months in, so it's too late for that. Uh, and the reason why I would call it Simple Truths is because much of the th- things that John says to us, a lot of us already know Uh, But they're so incredibly foundational, and we need them repeated to us all the time. Um, But this evening, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 24. Um, I think I see a couple of new faces here. Uh, There are Bibles in the backs of those pews. You can take one home with you. Uh, It's also like we've had everything on the projector. Um, But we are going to be looking at a passage in chapter 2 that is meant to encourage us in light of... Um, of the really hard hits that John has been delivering in this last chapter and a half, right? He's kind of been giving us some some tests uh, to see whether or not someone is actually a Christian, and then here John injects some encouragement to us, and and I really appreciate that uh, about our God, right? God knows his people. Uh, I was talking about this in the small group earlier that meets before church. Um, I appreciate that God knows his people, and he knows how prone we are to feeling defeated and being discouraged, um, and how knowing that that's coming toward us often, God encourages us to keep pressing on in our knowledge of him and our walk with him. Right? So it's, he's just incredibly kind. Um, like, like it was said in the small group, everything is a grace. All of the encouragement to us is just a grace upon grace from God that we don't deserve, but yet he gives to his children because he loves us and he wants us to know his love for us. Uh, but before we actually get into the text, I just want to be really, really, really transparent with everyone in here. Uh, this is in my notes because this is just a good, it's a good teaching experience or a teaching point, I think. Uh, this is one of the hardest texts that I've ever studied in four years of preaching, right? So I just wanted to like just lay that out to you guys. This is a really, really unique part of the New Testament, right? But I have had such a hard time <laughs> figuring out what John meant. And you'll probably think by the end of this that I'm an idiot uh, by the end of this sermon because of the really simple truths that I'm going to lay before you. Like, why did it take you so long? Why did you have to study so much to come to these very simple conclusions? Uh, but I just had a really hard time with this one. I, I used literally nine different commentaries from nine different authors and listened to seven different sermons from Presbyterians and Baptists trying to figure out what this thing meant. Uh, all right. Uh, I just wanted to lay that before you guys. And and just so you know, um, all scholars are in agreement about the big general points of this text, but there's a ton of debate on the finer details uh, of this passage. And on those finer details, scholars have pretty much been debating this since John died. (laughs) Like, what exactly did John mean on these these finer points? Um, And also, if any of the the premises that I'm going to preach from, if you guys don't see eye to eye with me on that, uh, I'll meet you in the parking lot after church. I'm kidding. I'll give you, um, seriously, I'll give you access to all of my study resources. I I want you guys to, again, don't just let me spoon feed things to you guys. I'll give you my resources so you can study it yourself. Um, But the reason why I brought up how much of a hard time I had with this passage before we actually get into it is, one, I don't know everything, and I really want you guys to know that, right? I'm not Jesus. I'm not omniscient. I don't know all things about the scripture at all times. I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't want you guys to, to, to fanboy worship me ever. 
because uh, I don't always know everything. Uh, very rarely do I know anything. Um, and two, I, want, I wanted to, to lay that before you guys how hard of a time that I had with this text, uh, because I want you guys to be encouraged as you read your Bibles, right? Some parts of Scripture are just hard to understand, right? Something that we read, uh, we've read before in the 1689 Confession is that not all parts of Scripture are alike plain, Right? Not all of them are, are just as easy to understand, but be encouraged in that everything we need to know for salvation and living a life that honors God and pleases God is so plain that a child can see them. Uh, just a plain reading of the scriptures will show us salvation and how we're supposed to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Um, but I just really wanted to encourage you guys. Uh, your pastor had a really hard time reading the Bible and understanding it. So be encouraged and don't let that stop reading your Bible. Like Don't let that stop you from reading your Bible just because it's hard to understand. Um, so fight through it. Right? So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged by that. Um, but this text we're in, um, it, it, it was a big encouragement to me this week. And John wrote it to encourage his readers. And my prayer this week is that God will bless us in our study of it this evening and that we would leave here encouraged as well. So I'm going to read the text and we'll pray and then we'll get into what it means. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12-14 through 14. I am writing to you, little children... Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please bless my preaching this evening. That if anything I say is, is unbiblical or inaccurate, that it would fall on deaf ears of this congregation. And that the truths that are evident in this text, that we'd be able to glean them, they'd be plain to us. That we would be encouraged by your Holy Spirit working alongside the word. God, encourage us that we may persevere in the faith. Let us see the truths, the position that we're in because of the gospel. The things that are ours in Christ. And let us hold tightly to those and let no one take them from us, including ourselves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so the first question that comes to mind when we read this, or at least for me, is who is John talking to here? Right? That, that's the big question that, that we all want to ask. is Who is exactly is John addressing? Right? Because he names three groups. He names children, uh, fathers, and young men. So what's he really getting at here? So we'll start with the first group, children. Right? The word that John uses here for children, the, the Greek word, the original word, is the same word that John uses elsewhere um, to refer to the people of God. Right? He's, so he's using the same word here that he has used in other contexts. Right? So, just, uh, so he's referring to the children of God. He's referring to believers, those who have repented of their sins, put their faith in Christ. Right? So we see this same word used in 1 John 2.1. Right? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We see it in verse 18 of the same chapter. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. 28 of the same chapter. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame 
at his coming, right? So again, contextually, we know, especially from, that, from chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We know that all believers have an advocate with the Father. All believers have Jesus Christ the righteous pleading our case before the Father, right? Um, so we know that little children is a reference to all of the people of God. That's the easy one. No one really debates that one too much. Um, but then John goes on to address fathers and young men. And here's where it maybe gets a little bit more complicated. So children references all of the people of God. And then he says fathers and young men. I don't believe that John means literal males who have had children and males who are past puberty. I don't believe that that's what he's talking about with fathers and young men. He's referring to the older group, right, both men and women, and the younger group, right, fathers and young men. He's referring, it's meant to be gender inclusive on this, both men and women, both sexes, old and young. So here's my argument. By addressing all the children of God as a whole, as children, and then addressing the old and the young specifically, I believe that John is stressing that he is talking to everyone in the church. Right? Everyone in the church. Uh, I think he's using uh, somewhat poetic language. Right? And if you think that I sound like a madman here, and I'm not saying that this man has any authority in his own, uh, St. Augustine took a view really similar to this, and that's, that's where I saw this, and I think this makes the most sense. So I'm not out in left field by myself here. Um, but I, th- I think John is essentially saying, hey, everyone, yes, the old, I'm talking to you. Yes, the young, I'm talking to you as well, right? So everyone needs to listen. So what John is saying to us, these truths that he's laying before us, that your sins are forgiven for his namesake, you know the Father, you know him who is from the beginning, you have overcome the evil one, all of these things apply to all believers at all times. Right. Further, there's, just, there's overlap between the old and the young. And I know I've got to lay all this groundwork out before we can get into it. You just need to know who he's talking to. But there's overlap between the young and the old. Uh, both the old and the young have overcome the devil through Jesus. No one could deny that. Whether you're a brand new believer or you've been a Christian for a long time, one's more spiritually mature than the other, both have overcome the evil one in Christ. Whether you're old or young physically, both have overcome the evil one. Both have the word of God abiding in them. Both know the one who is from the beginning. Right? So there's overlap between the two groups of the old and the young. So again, this leads me to believe that John is using somewhat poetic language to address everyone who reads this. Right? Uh, something else you'll notice whenever we read that is that John repeats himself. Right? Nearly identical. Right? Nearly identical times. So he does the first set of three and then he has a second set of three. And some people, that throws a wrench in their understanding of the text, and they're saying, I don't know why he repeats himself. Well, there's no secret meaning here. Why do you repeat yourself? For emphasis, right? <laughs> like in some of these commentaries I read, it was really funny. They were saying, like, John's trying to, like, stress something that wasn't emphasis. They say, like, another meaning. And it, this made me laugh because, like, you tell your kids twice not to go down the stairs because you really don't want them to go down the stairs, right? <laughs> there's no secret thing there. Um, and furthermore, since John is repeating himself... And he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I just want to make a note of this. He repeats himself, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to repeat himself. Know this. God doesn't waste ink, right? God doesn't waste his holy breath. If Scripture says something once, it is very important. If God wants it said twice, it is incredibly, deadly important that we hear it and receive it by faith. Right? So I just wanted to lay that out there. So let's do a little bit of context. So he's referring to the whole church. Right? Both the old and the young, everyone present. And he's repeating himself because it's something that he really needs us to know. So before we actually get in the verses themselves, we've got to lay a little bit more groundwork. But I promise, it's not, I'm not just going to give you a running commentary on this. We're actually going to get into the truths of the text. 
We need to understand the context in which this letter and passage is written. Right? If we don't do that, we're going to eisegete this thing and not understand what's going on. So what's going on in Asia Minor, the people to whom John is writing, is that there are heretics there. We talked about this about eight weeks ago, you'll remember. There are heretics there splitting the church. Right? They're teaching a false Christ. They're teaching a false gospel. They're living immoral lives, and they're splitting the church. They're, they're leading people away from the truth. They're forming cults. Um, and in teaching their false doctrine, what they're essentially saying to the Christians that John writes to is that they don't know God. It's like they're, they're looking those Christians in the eye and saying, you don't know God, you don't know anything, we are the true Christians, is essentially what's going on. So then John writes this letter in response to the heretics that are there that are dividing the church, and he writes for two reasons. The first reason is actually stated in the letter. 1 John chapter 5, verses, verse 13 I write these things, the whole letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? So the primary reason that John wrote this was to give assurance to the believers that are there. Right? That in light of all of these heretics going around, you guys actually, those of you who have believed on the right Christ, you guys are saved. You guys are Christians. You have eternal life. So that's his primary purpose for writing this letter in spite of those heretics. And the second reason that he writes is to show the true Christians, to give them tests so that they can spot false Christians. Right? And you guys have seen the last few weeks we've been going over those tests. So just to recap, the first test that John gives us is a doctrinal test. Right, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he's saying, he, he describes to us who Christ is. Right, the one who is from the beginning, right, the Son of God that they have fellowship with. Right, so the right Christ, he must be the second person of the Trinity, because right, God is triune. The Son of God, the one who was crucified, raised from the dead. All that, we must believe in the right Christ. We must have an, uh, an accurate knowledge of our sin. Right, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Right, if anyone says they, that they don't sin, that they have no sin, they're a liar and they don't know God. Right, so that's the first test, is the doctrinal test. Do you have the right Christ? Do you understand your sin and your need of a Savior? Verse 9, we see a second test, I would argue. He says that, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So have, has this person repented of their sin and trusted in Christ? He gives us a third test. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, Do you love God? Do you keep His commandments? Right, that's another way that you can know if someone's a Christian or not. Verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2, he gives us the fourth test that we've looked at. Do you love other people the way that Jesus loved you? Or rather, loves you. So those are the four tests that he gives us. And in giving us those tests, right, do they have the right Christ? Do they understand the doctrines of sin? Do they, have they repented of their sins? Do they love God? Do they love their neighbor? And looking at that, John makes it really plain for us to see who is a true believer and who is an imposter. So John gave those tests so that the, the people in Asia Minor that he's writing to could look out at these false teachers and be able to spot and know that they don't really know Jesus. Right? They don't pass these tests. They don't really know God. But God, as he inspired John to write this, he also knows, I mean, he knows everything, obviously. But God knows that we who receive this letter, including the people who originally received this letter in the first century, God knows that we will take these tests and apply them to ourselves. Right? Even though John wrote these to be used against uh, false teachers and heretics that we might be able to spot them, God knows we're going to apply these tests to ourselves. 
And that's a really good thing for us to measure ourselves against these tests, right? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Right? So we ought to be introspective from time to time. Right? We, we should sometimes ask ourselves the question, Am I really a Christian? Right? And in those moments, those tests are really good for us to be able to look at and see, if I pass these tests, then I'm a Christian. If I don't, then I either need to repent or something's really amiss in my life. Right? So it's good for us to be introspective. Right? It's good because many people think that they're Christians, and they aren't. Right? They profess to have faith in Christ, uh, but they exhibit none of the traits of a true believer. But these tests are also good for us. It's good for us to be introspective in looking at these tests because they keep us on track to pursue a life that honors God. And these tests are also great for us to use on ourselves because, again, if we can look and see that we pass, we can know and have confidence that we have come to know Christ and that we're saved. But we also have a capacity, and God knows this, we have a capacity to become so introspective that we doubt our salvation. Right. Anyone else am I alone on this? I think we all have that capacity in us. We all do this from time to time. Because we beat ourselves to death with the tests that John gave us. At least that, that's what I've done the majority of the time that I've read this letter. Get in the first two chapters and by the end of it I say, dude, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. <laughs> right? Because I'm not nailing these. Right? So like, just some examples. You could look at that first doctrinal test and you could say, you know, I believe that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man and... and I know he's the second person of the Trinity and that he was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and died and was buried and raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and is coming back to judge both the living and the dead. But I don't really understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And I don't really understand how Christ is both God and man at the same time. I affirm it. I I see that's what the Scripture teaches, but my theology isn't really truly fleshed out. Do I really believe in the right Christ like John says I have to? Right? We can become introspective like that. Do I really have the right Christ? Or, yeah, I believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection saved me. I believe He's my representative before God. But I'm not really sure how it all fully works out. I don't really understand all the doctrines around the atonement. Do I really believe? If I really don't understand the ins and outs, do I really believe? Or getting into the test about loving God, right? We can say, you know, I try to obey. I don't always love His commandments the way that I should. I don't always obey the way I should. Do I obey them at all, really, then, if I'm not obeying them perfectly? Or, you know, loving other people. I try to love others, but I don't always love the way that Jesus loves me. And if we beat ourselves with these tests, we'll begin to say, am I even a Christian? And we'll become completely defeated, and we'll we'll become navel-gazers. Right? Just always looking down all the time. Scared. Because we don't know what our standing is before God. Because we see that we don't pass these tests perfectly. We can become absolutely beaten down. And if that happens, we have defeated John's purpose of writing. John, like again, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he's written. He doesn't want us to do that with these tests, and God wants, us, wants to guard us against that. Right? So again, I can't stress enough, John did not write to make us question our salvation, but rather to give true Christians the assurance of salvation. And again, just consider just a note. Consider the grace of God here. That he again, he knows we are so prone to discouragement, and he lifts us up in this text. All right. So, so I, I want to lay this before you. If you 
have passed these tests that we've looked at in the last few, few weeks, if you pass these tests, even on the lowest level, and hear me out, some of us, we pass these tests on different levels, right? Like I know I got the doctrinal test pretty good, but I don't do the best with loving people like Christ loved me, right? Just laying that out there. I know some of you guys would give your right arm to somebody in need, but your doctrine's weak, right? So you see what I'm saying? We all pass these tests on different levels, but if you pass these tests, even with the lowest possible mark that you could, that you're striving to know more. You're striving to love God. You're striving to love your neighbor. If you pass on the most low level, then these three verses that we've read are given by God to you to encourage you and to help you push on and to give you the assurance of salvation. So let's, let's go through them now. Verse 12 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. For his namesake. John begins this whole thing by reminding us of the forgiveness of sins. Right? And I know that I often don't get as excited about that whenever I read that in the text of Scripture. I don't get as excited as I should, which means that I need to hear it again. Because there's something wrong with me if that doesn't absolutely excite me. Because often we are prone to forget just how, how, how unfathomably amazing that it is that God forgives sinners. Now, and just a side note, too, everything that we're going to look at uh, are, are present realities for the Christian. Everything we're going to look at, this is yours if you're in Christ. John wants to begin this whole excerpt. He wants, to, he wants to root us in the reality that all of our rebellion and all of our transgression is done away with. He wants us to know this truth beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we are no longer under the wrath of God. And that all of your failure to obey God has been taken away from you. You have been pardoned by God. Though you are actually guilty, God has granted you amnesty and pardoned you in spite of your sin. He says, I write these things because your sins are forgiven. You are saved. Many people come or wrestle with coming to this realization that they're actually forgiven. Right? I, I do all the time. <laughs> Many of us wrestle with this because I think it's because we all screw up every day. We sin every day and we all become aware of that at some point or another. And then it's hard for us to wrestle with the fact that we're forgiven. But the thing that gives assurance to us in that verse is why we are forgiven. The back end of verse 12 says, You are forgiven for His namesake. This is huge for us to remember. Never forget this. You are not saved for your own sake. At all. That, you have, that God has no reason to save you in and of yourself. We're nothing but sinners. We're nothing but miserable wretches. But we're saved for His name's sake. We're saved for Christ's sake, is who John has in mind here. And to be saved because of or, or the name, right? The name of Christ. Name means the person and work of Jesus. For His sake. I think literally the text reads, we are saved on account of Him. On His account. So our sins aren't forgiven. Hear me on this, please. If these tests have been beating you down that we've been looking at, you are not saved because of how well you pass these tests. At all. You're not saved because of how well you pass the test. You're saved because Jesus Christ passed these tests perfectly in your place. Jesus is our righteousness. We're not forgiven our sins because we have made up for our sins with obedience to God. We are forgiven because Jesus is our propitiation. Because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God in our place. Not because we have made up for our sins, but because Christ is our righteousness and Christ has taken the wrath of God on our behalf. 
Your salvation is all about Christ and His work. It has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with you, and it never has, is what John's saying. Your salvation has never been, it had anything to do with you. You are a recipient of it. It's all because of what He did for His name's sake, on account of Him. That is assurance. Children, your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. And because of that work of Christ, John says in verse 13, you know the Father. Because of the work of Christ, and I don't mean, I'm I'm not belittling the work of Jesus, but I heard a preacher say this this past week of the seven I listened to, and I thought that this, this was really good. Christ's work was a means to an end. Like that, that was staggering to me. The work of Christ on behalf of sinners was a means to an end that we could come to an intimate knowledge of God. Right? Romans 8, 14 through 16, Paul says a similar thing. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It says, through this work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we might receive the work of Christ, we have received the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted into the family of God, and now we can use an intimate term with God. Abba, right? Dad. Right? We can call God our Father. God, again, I can't stress, that, that, that's astounding that the God whom we were once alienated from because of our sin now says, you can call me your dad. And God is Father to all who trust in Christ. That means we have an intimacy with God that the world does not. Again, you hear all the time people saying, you know, well, we're all children of God. Well, that's not true. The Bible says the unbeliever is a, children, a child of wrath. And those who believe in Christ become the children of God. Right? It's absolutely to become a child of God apart from Christ. So again, the work of Christ means that we know God as Father. And I think that there's just a really simple truth that John wants us to see in this. God is Father. Fathers love their kids. Right? The, that God the Father deeply loves you. He cares for us like a father. He instructs us through the Word of God. He hears you. This is big for me lately. He hears you when you pray to Him. He hears His people. Read the Psalms. You hear me when I, when I cry out to you. You hear your people. You hear us pleading with you. and You're, you're there with us. As Father, He protects us from Satan. He guards us against the evil one. And we will always be His children. You never stop being a child of somebody. I will forever be Crystal's son. We will always be children of this Father. We have a sweet communion with the Father by the work of Christ. Right? So just consider the privilege that we have. The fact that in spite of our sin, God would count us as His own. You know Him. He says, if your faith is in Christ, you know Him. John also says, and he repeats it twice, that we know Him who is from the beginning. Now this may sound like a mere repetition that we know God, right? That we know the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I think that there's a nuance here. You know Him who is from the beginning. I think what he's getting at is you know the faithfulness of God. You know that God is faithful. Consider this, we know the One who is before anything else was. And we know the one who will be when everything else passes away. 
I think it's what John's getting at, that we know the sovereign God who controls all things, who holds his people near to his heart, and who is faithful to his word. You know him who is from the beginning. Now the Christians who first received this letter, I guarantee you, were worried over the chaos that was happening in the church in Asia Minor. They didn't know what was going to happen. Again, there were heretics splitting the church. There are people leaving. Right? There are people, I'm sure, in the community that they respected walking out on Christ. There's persecution coming from the government in some form or another. Right? So there's all this junk happening in addition to just regular stress of life. But John takes a moment here and he says, You know the sovereign, faithful God. You know the one who is from the beginning. And that's incredibly comforting to us. Right? That no matter what is going on around us, no matter the uncertainty in our lives, no matter the stress or the chaos, if all hell is breaking loose around you, that we know the one who rules over all things and will be there with us. We know the one that is faithful to his people and ultimately promises to bring us home to his side. He is faithful and he will do it. And we know him. We know that one, that God. But then lastly, John writes to us, and I'm just going to use the second half of chapter, or uh, verse 14. Lastly, John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is awesome. He says, you have overcome Satan. Hear me on this. That is a present reality. The verb tenses he's using there. This is a present reality for us. You have overcome him. It's already a done deal. You have overcome the devil. But how have we overcome Satan? Now, you guys know that I talk about union with Christ a lot. It's one of my favorite concepts in the Bible. We have been united with Christ. Christ has won the victory over the devil. In his death and resurrection, he has overcome the power of Satan and the power of sin. Therefore, those of us who are united with Christ by faith, whatever is said of Christ is said of us. Therefore, we have one too. We have one as well. Further, we know the ultimate demise of Satan. Right? A lot of people get this twisted and they think that the devil rules over hell, and that is hilarious. <laughs> right? Satan will be punished in hell for all eternity. Satan will perish there. And we know that that's his ultimate demise. The book of Revelation teaches us that he will perish under the wrath of God for eternity along with the unbelievers. But again, we also know that the power of Satan and the power of sin have been broken over us by the work of Christ. Romans chapter 6 tells us that. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you used to follow the devil, but God made you alive with Christ. You don't follow him anymore. Right, so his power has been broken, and we are victorious in Christ alone. Know that. Right, you are not victorious over the devil. The devil is infinitely stronger than all of us. Jesus told, I believe it was Peter, Satan would sift you like wheat if I didn't protect you. Right, you are literally nothing in his hands. He is so much more powerful than any of us are. But in Christ, we're told, we have overcome him. We have victory through Christ. But though Satan is ultimately overcome in a final sense, we will still do battle with the devil on a daily basis. Right? So consider it like this. If you wound an animal, right, but they're not dead yet, and they flail around in death throes, they'll still lash out at you and try to hurt you. Right? That's what the devil essentially does to the believer. He's already defeated. He just lashes out at us like a wild, wounded animal. 
Right, so I just want to stop here for a minute, and I want to show you guys how Satan is overcome ultimately, and how he is overcome daily as well. As well, but in order to do that, I want to talk about how Satan attacks us, and how we fight back, or rather, the truth that we hold on to that fights back for us. Satan's attack is twofold, right? I think John Piper said that uh, Satan plays has like one instrument. He's not an orchestra, and he plays the same note, right, just over and over and over again. All right, so the devil, his attack on the Christian is twofold. One, he, he tempts us to sin. And two, when we sin, he accuses us of our sin. That's all he's got. Right? That's all he's going to tempt you. And then if you sin, he's going to accuse you of your sin. So whenever, whenever I say Satan tempts us, tempts us, I mean Satan lies to us. Right? Satan will lie to us and tell us that God's commands are not good, God does not have our best interest in mind, and that sin is better than obedience. That's, that's the lie. That's the age-old lie. He has been doing that since Genesis 3, where in essence he says, eat the fruit. The knowledge that you'll have is better than obedience to God. That's how he always tempts. He did that with Jesus in Luke chapter 4, where he essentially says, owning the world is better than doing the will of God, and you'll have it much easier, and it's going to be awesome. That's how Satan always tempts us. He lies. He tells us God's commands are not as good as the sin. But trust me, this is all coming full circle. This does have something to do with the text. How did Jesus resist Satan? With the Word. With Scripture. Every time Satan would tempt him, he would say, It is written, or it is said. And he begins to quote the Old Testament over and over and over again. that's That's how Jesus did battle with Satan. And John tells us in this passage, if you look at the verse 14, the back end of it, he says that we are strong. We're strong to overcome the devil because the word of God abides in us. That's how we're strong. That's how we overcome. So scripture is how we fight back. Right? The word of God is the only part of the armor of God that is for the offensive. Everything else is defensive, but this is the one thing that we strike back with. So we fight with the truth of God's word and the knowledge that we are free from Satan's power. And though he is ultimately overcome, we overcome Satan when we resist the temptation to sin. And we do so by holding on to the truths of the word of God. But... When we willfully succumb to temptation and sin, and hear me on this, you're never overpowered by the devil. John just told you, you have overcome him. So when you sin, you have willfully succumbed to temptation. You were not overcome. You willfully succumb to temptation and sin. When we do that, Satan will then attack us by accusing us of our sins before God. Revelation 22.10, John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That's the devil. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan will accuse us of our sin when indeed we succumb to temptation. And what's really funny uh, in thinking about Satan accusing us of our sin, um, he's actually completely correct in his accusations. <laughs> like, like, if he accuses us of sinning, we sinned. Right? We actually objectively sinned. So Satan essentially stands before the throne of God and says, they sinned, they deserve hell, they should be cast away from God's presence for eternity. And on our own, apart from Christ, he is absolutely right. Satan even accuses us to our face 
metaphorically, when we sin. Right? You ever felt this after you sin? You're not a Christian. You're not a believer. A Christian wouldn't have done this. You're under the wrath of God. You sin. There's no way God has forgiveness for you now. You've gone too far. You've done it too many times. A Christian would not keep failing in this way. A Christian would be doing better than you. We've felt that before, haven't we? That's Satan accusing us of our sin. But Romans 8.33-34 show us the victory that we have in Christ over this accusation of Satan. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Just like the song that we sang at the beginning. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. That's right there. The accusation of Satan falls on deaf ears. Because it is God who justifies. Who dares to bring a charge against God's chosen people? The one whom God has brought to himself. Who dares bring a charge against them? The accusation of Satan falls on deaf ears because God has justified us by the blood of his son. Satan is overcome in that he has no power over us to make us sin. And that when we do sin, his accusations are voided by Christ. He is overcome fully. We are victorious. We can indeed live the lives that God desires us to. John Calvin said this. I amended this quote just a little bit to make it more plain. John says that they had conquered who were as yet engaged in the contest. But our condition is far different from those who fight under the banners of men. For war is doubtful to them and their victory is uncertain. But we are conquerors before we engage with the enemy. For our head, Christ, has once for all conquered for us the whole world. We win before we fight with Him. Tell me that's not encouraging to live a holy life. I can do this. He's defeated. Sin, Satan, and death have no power over me in Christ. We can do this. What an encouragement to us. So to sum up everything that we've seen this evening, John wants us to know and be completely certain that our sins are forgiven because of Christ. He wants us to know and be absolutely certain that we know the Father and that the Father loves us and that the sovereign faithful God holds us in His hands and that the enemy, Satan, is defeated in Christ Jesus. So I have two points of application for this text. It's funny here, John doesn't actually exhort us to do anything here. And I thank God for that. Sometimes we just need to be encouraged. So the first point of application is be encouraged. Be encouraged by the word of God given to you through John's pen. These things are all true for you. If your faith is in Christ, please hear me. This is true of you. Don't doubt God's love for you. Don't doubt your standing before God. John Bunyan, the Puritan author and pastor, he, he said that he doubted his assurance all the time because he knew how much that he sinned. He knew His wickedness was always before him until in his mind's eye he looked up to heaven and saw Christ standing before